Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Hello, listeners. It's Jamie and Caitlin, and we're coming to you from the future. Here's the deal. We recorded this episode a while ago. We recorded it, I think, a few months ago now. And mm-hmm. uh, because this is an episode about space, we reference the potential of a billionaire space race and how ridiculous that is in the episode. But when we recorded yeah. it, it wasn't quite as full-blown a thing as it is now. So if it sounds a little off, uh, that is the reason why. But well, we've got you here, uh, future Jamie and future Caitlin. Uh, yeah, we just wanted to sort of bring everybody, I guess, up to speed. You probably know, unfortunately, because billionaires sure do get a lot of press. Oh, I thought we were going to be talking about Space Jam, A New Legacy. Is that not the space that you <laughs> saw it? But do you did you is it like as completely bizarre as it looks? Because it looks so yes. bizarre. It was... Why is the mystery machine in it? Why are the people from A Clockwork Orange in it? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> because the movie is more concerned about reminding you that other Warner Brothers intellectual properties exist than it is about telling a story that makes any sense. The plot like, is borderline incomprehensible. The movie is just like one frame of sensory overload after another. <laughs> it's unwatchable is it good bad or is it just like mm, no okay it's that's just, a bummer it's bad, i was like I, I do I want to i want I, i'll still watch it because i have hbo max but like it just looks bad bad oh god so depressing it's whenever whenever a movie is like we're just um here for ip it's like well yeah jesus not not worth it right. was very disappointed was hoping for a fun you know because the first space jam is fun a classic this one is not yeah i i uh i think the only more depressing space topic than the fact that space jam 2 sucks is that the fact that there's a three-way billionaire white guy space race going on right now yes it's <laughs> the most 
just dystopian thing in the world. It's between uh-huh. three of the biggest losers on the planet that like it shouldn't be <laughs> illegal to kill them in Minecraft, of course. Um, <laughs> and those losers are Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that is now officially a thing. Richard Branson has already been to space. It goes without saying that, you know, it we talk about this in the episode a little bit as well. But the fact that, you know, exploring space is not the problem here i understand human curiosity it makes sense that people want (laughs) to explore space it's the fact that these motherfuckers are going to space for pr instead of curing world hunger which they literally could do and so it is just like disgusting and embarrassing in every potential way i wanted to just read a quick quote uh that came out Mm. in july 2021 from a piece that i really liked that i felt like broke this down pretty well mm-hmm. in uh J- oh my god jacobin magazine i've never tried to say that out loud uh the writer <laughs> is luke savage and he says this quote more straightforwardly extreme wealth in the capitalist age is by definition engaged in a constant and desperate scramble for new sources of ethical legitimacy billionaires need a public facing reason to exist and for the time being at least owning the rights to bits of paper and expropriating surplus value still doesn't quite cut the mustard if on the other hand plutocratic pursuits and the impossibly decadent lifestyles surrounding them can be packaged as extensions of a progressive human project so much the better the likes of private islands luxury estates and silicon valley sweatshops are now justifying themselves with all the pomp and sober purpose of neil armstrong taking his first step onto the surface of the moon unquote Mm. and um you know five dollar words aside (laughs) i feel like that that kind of like puts together you know the issue isn't a curiosity in space it's Mm -hmm. repackaging billionaires going to space for attention and also for again personal profit Mm -hmm. in the effort to literally colonize space that is the problem uh so bad time pr wise for space but bravely (laughs) we're doing a contact episode anyways yeah jodie foster going to space fine Jeff Bezos going to space, no thanks. That's my yeah. stance. Wouldn't it be interesting if there was a little accident? It'd be wild if this episode came up and then it was like, it's just, I feel too powerful at this point because I did call J-Lo and you did. Ben Affleck getting back together. So I have to be careful. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, what if Jeff Bezos' spaceship blew up? Could be interesting. Look. Uh, okay, enjoy the episode. <laughs> The Bechdel cast. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Caitlin. No, it's not Caitlin. It's it's your father, but it, oh it's actually god. also not your father. What? It's it's an I'm an alien. Oh my god, this is so confusing. I hope we're on an <laughs> island that looks like a screensaver. <laughs> yes, we are. Oh, but good. actually, that's what it looks like to you. But actually, we're we're in a, we're on a star. We're near a star. We're on a planet. We're in the sky on a planet mm-hmm. near the star Vega. Oh, okay. Get it? That makes that, that tracks for me. <laughs> oh, and have you just you just haven't? Why haven't you reached out before now? Um, I like how he's just like that's just kind of how it works here. You're like, <laughs> sir. <laughs> Uh, excuse me, I texted you 26 years ago, and you're just now responding? Rude. Uh, I, that would have been, that would have, that explanation in that scene would have made way more sense to me. Of Like, time works so differently. I, I just got here, it feels like. But instead, he pulls, like, kind of, you know, a classically male thing to do, uh, which is be like, I don't know. I just don't. <laughs> 
I don't know. <laughs> you seemed like you were fine. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, what's a what's a big deal? <laughs> this is a Bechdel cast. Uh, my name is Jamie Loftus. My name's Caitlin Durante. And this is our podcast where we take a look at your uh, favorite or least favorite movies with an intersectional feminist lens. And today we're taking a little a little pod all the way <gasps> to space. A little podcast. Ooh. <gasps> this is our little yeah. This is what that's how the way that Jodie Foster feels when she gets into the pod is how I feel when we press record. I go, I'm okay. I'm okay. What did she say? She's like, I'm good to go. <laughs> I'm okay to go. I'm okay to go. I'm okay to go. That's what Caitlin and I are doing for like 10 minutes before every episode starts. And we're getting like more and more afraid. And then there's people in another room that are like, that's what, that's what Aristotle was like before, before we, you know, it's a whole thing. And then we record for 18 hours. Yeah. But it it just, the audio never saves. Yeah. It's it's just static. Too soon. Too soon. Uh, listen, <clears throat> listen, things happen, listeners, and and sometimes audio corrupts and you live and you learn. But this is our, that that's not going to happen today. That is not going to happen today. Today, we're talking about contact mm-hmm. and we have an incredible guest with us here. We certainly do. Kelly is a filmmaker, actor, writer, and producer and actor on the film Sugar Daddy. It's Kelly McCormick. Welcome. Wormhole, ready to go. I go. What was it? Oh, oh, You're um, okay to go? Okay to go. Okay to go. I'm okay to go. That's quite literally how I feel entering a Zoom chat at all times. I'm like, am I ready to go? Am I not ready to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's horrific. Like when you're in the waiting room, you have to like confirm your video. You're like, oh, I guess that is how I look. I'm okay to go. Yeah, like the series of questions it asks you where you're expecting for your video to pop up and it become your new reality. And it just says, wait, we want to know if your audio is working. And you're like, it's I'm okay to go. And they're like, what? We need to know if your video is working. I am okay to go. Like I need to go. <laughs> it's truly words to live by. Honestly, Yeah. Um, you know what, Jamie? We forgot to describe what the the Bechtel test is. Oh my gosh! We were not okay to go. It turns out we, after all that to do, we were not okay to go. Well, we can tell them now. Yeah. It's fortunately this isn't rocket science, and it's okay if we fuck up just a little bit. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Bechtel test is a media metric created by queer cartoonist Alison Bechtel, sometimes called the Bechtel Wallace test. I like how we have like it's just like. I don't even have to think about it when I describe it. It's just I'm like... I'm always okay to go. Yeah, we are... <laughs> it's true. Anyway, it's a media metric that requires, for our purposes, our rendition of the test. Uh, two people of a marginalized gender have names, have to speak to each other about something other than a man for a two-line exchange of dialogue, or like for us, it's uh, a meaningful conversation that might impact the narrative in some way. Right. So... Right. You know, not every movie is going to pass. I guess we'll just see. We'll have how to contact see. Does I actually did I? As time goes on, as we talk about all the time, I always like we're we're always forgetting to pay attention uh, to whether it passes the Bechdel <laughs> uh-huh. test because it's you know it's like not the most important thing we discuss by a mile. But I did pay. I don't. I was I was on my toes for this one. And Same. Yeah. I think probably. I think it probably is when there's only like two female characters you pay closer (laughs) attention because you're like oh i just i just wonder (laughs) right right yes yeah so yes today's movie is contact 
Kelly, what's your what's your relationship with this movie? What's your history with this? I have a really emotional history with this, which I was reliving last night when I rewatched the film for the first time, not on VHS, which was the last time oh. I watched this film. Uh-huh. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I it's actually sort of special and the more I thought about it, you know, watching the film and musing over it, I was like, I guess that is a pretty special connection. Um I grew up uh, with a, fa- a very large family of many, many, many cousins, and we went up to this wilderness sort of space with no electricity and no hot running water every summer, and we were super nerds, like absolute super nerds. We, we played Dungeons and Dragons, we played Magic Cards, we played Fifth Age. I read pretty much exclusively science fiction and fantasy from age like 10 to now that was all I sort of like not I guess I've read other things now but um but uh that was our like the lifeblood of our family dynamic that's what we talked about the most and I had 11 older cousins that were all male I was the first like female born like cousin of the group of people of the of the major super family and Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my older cousins, Kevin, was our smartest, most um, shrewd-minded, sci-fi obsessed cousin. And and for people who have cousins, like naming cousins as these like icons, I feel like we'll feel familiar. You know, like these archetypes. I would say like everyone, everyone has a sci-fi cousin. Everyone has. And he he was the one who ran all of our fifth age campaigns and our which is sort of a hybrid of or not a hybrid an extension of dungeons and dragons that plays with the dragon lines books and he was the one who would be like the game master of all of our magic card games and he was the guy mm. who we all sort of looked up to for the uh, sci-fi fantasy um like advice and he he was the one who was like the the, the last word on all of it and mm. he started reading uh Carl Sagan's book Contact And um, I remember him, I was quite young, I was like 12, and I remember him reading this copy that had been up on the island in a stack of books that is probably 75 years old. And he's reading it, and he's talking about it, and he's talking about transcendental numbers and and how much math there is in it, and talking about pi, and, and, and I was really into math, and I was really into science and stuff, and obviously science fiction, and I, I kind of got this feeling that if I could understand contact, if I could read contact and understand it, then maybe Kevin would like talk, you know, I was so young, but I just, I looked up to him so much. I was yeah. like, well, maybe he'll, yeah. maybe he'll talk to me and I'll, and I'll be like mm. one of the, <laughs> one of the smarter cousins. That. So he had this copy that he read in the corner of the cabin and then when he went to bed or when he put it down, I would secretly pick it up and try and like understand because the, Aww. yeah, the Carl Sagan book is, is it's much more, uh, it's, it's technically hard science fiction. It's sort of classified in that um, mm-hmm. really logic-based, math-based sort of Isaac Asimov yeah. school of science fiction rather than mm-hmm. like the philosophical, well, it is philosophical, but the other end of the spectrum, which would be like Orwellian sci-fi, which is a little more digestible uh, sociology. Mm-hmm. Um, so I read the book or I, you know, I tried to understand it. I think I did. And then I begged my mom to rent it from Blockbuster, I think. I think it was a Blockbuster rent. Mm-hmm. And I think we just paid that 
late fee so many times because I think I lost it or stole it away because I watched it so many times. Um, and uh, I haven't seen it since, since before last night. And last night I watched it and there was wow. so many things I forgot, I guess, conflated from the book, mainly Matthew McConaughey. I completely mm. wrote out... <laughs> My little feminist brain wrote out <laughs> Matthew McConaughey in the 90s and early 2000s. Straight out of that movie. Honestly, were you wrong? Yeah. I was not. I. It's very interesting to sort of, now I can kind of parse how it diverges from the book. And he is certainly, I mean, we'll get into it, but... I mean, let's get into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm so curious to hear uh, about, because I, I didn't do too much research on the book, but the, the Matthew McConaughey character and storyline just reeked of studio notes to me. I'm very mm-hmm. curious of how much of that is is the case. Yeah. Well, yeah. I did read the book when I was somewhere between 12 and 15, but from my memory, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. there was... So first of all, let's just... I just want to say Jodie Foster. Like, I just want to say... First name Jody, last name ah. Foster. Let's just start with that because, I mean, now I can look back on the book and I just see her face and that's imbuing the text with such marvel that I'm, I'm really excited to sort of revisit that book. But mm-hmm. as I remember it, there are a couple weird alterations from the book. Number one, her mother is not dead and... Uh, mm. I, I am Canadian, so I will say I've had a couple conversations with Canadian filmmakers and American filmmakers about how fascinating it is that American studio movies kill off mothers and Canadian movies kill off fathers. Ooh, <laughs> It's like a very interesting... I guess if you look at Disney movies, it's like the most obvious, right, hegemonic sure. sort of big marquee version of that. But there always seems to be this dead mother, absent mother. She dies in the first 10 minutes. Um, and the mother in this film is sort of no different, but in the book, she is this constant character, um, kind of pushing Dr. Ellie, as I believe it, again, 13 year old brain, 12 year old brain, (laughs) pushing Dr. Ellie to make a choice between the personal and the professional at all times. And she has this, yeah, she has this father that she idolizes, but then he dies and then her stepdad is not as good and then the whole story you know kind of follows and then there is this kind of religious element to it where she meets a theologian and he has opinions about what the mission is but he's not a love interest i don't think okay. i think she has a love i i think she has a love interest with another astronaut i believe or another scientist but and then five people go to the mission it's not just her um, mm. as I remember it and, and also the more maddening and we'll get into it again, but the more maddening aspects of, um, the film I find is that this whole, like you, where's your proof? Where's your proof? Oh, like God. Yeah. you yeah. did, you, you crazy woman, like, you know, that, you know, in quotation marks that <laughs> right. you don't, you're, you're, you just are delusional and you're hysterical and you don't know. And this has just been one big delusion. And then at the end, you know, you see, I guess we're allowed to do spoilers here and people have seen content. Oh yeah. Right? Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm about to spoil the whole dang thing with this recap. I'll okay, great. <laughs> um, but there's this incredible through line in the book, which I remembered and thought was in the movie up until last night, which is that in the, when she's young and again, I'm butchering this. So for all the scientists and mathematicians and hard science fiction fans, like please, Please don't like admonish me too leave much. Leave Kelly but, alone. <laughs> leave me alone. I am a fairly 
intense nerd and science fiction fan so I feel like I can pull my weight but she when she's young she has this idea that pi you know the 3.14159 number that goes into Mm -hmm. eternity that you sort of skip over in math class like when you're young that it's (laughs) not that it's not transcendental or it is transcendental which means it's not algebraic and then something a bunch of stuff happens this is something she thinks of when she's a kid when she's young she's like i think this about pi i think this about this transcendental number Mm. and at the end of the book she figures out that the transcendental number in fact is a massive circle and somehow that circle is the proof that she actually did go and that is the made so she finds proof that she went wow Okay. Yeah, which was much more cathartic than how we ended Contact, the Hollywood film. But like, yeah. Well, Matthew McConaughey believes her, so I guess that's good enough. <laughs> that moment at the end where, like, for some reason, all she comes out of the courthouse or the Senate hearing or whatever, and all of these reporters aren't asking her questions, and then suddenly Matthew McConaughey's character is more famous than her in that moment? Absolutely what? not. hard no it's so bizarre she's all like huddled under a blanket like oh no i'm i'm so weak i just had an existential crisis and then everyone just yelled at me (laughs) and then everyone's like you man who's right there what do you believe and it's just like who gives a shit what matthew mcconaughey believes and he also like yells over a car he's like i don't know i think i believe her and he's wearing a huge (laughs) scarf and you're just like what is going on he has a scarf the size of his head like it's wild he is you know i don't like talking shit about other actors because i just feel like it's i mean i'm an actor so it's it's hard but i i think i'm gonna talk shit about matthew mcconaughey for a second (laughs) because i (laughs) i accidentally watched two back-to-back matthew mcconaughey films um because my uh unsurprisingly my next film is a sci-fi feature so (laughs) i was sort of Looking at, I, I wanted to know, I had some questions, so I watched, um, uh, what the hell is it called? The Christopher Nolan film. Oh, Interstellar. Interstellar. Yeah, I had never seen it. And I just don't think that, I mean, Jodie F- Foster quite literally wipes the floor with him. It's, it's oh, every scene that she's in, yeah. and it cuts to him, and he's supposed to emotionally meet her at a place. Yeah. He just falls short, and I don't know, the whole God subplot and the faith and the fact that he outs her at the senate when she's trying to when she's trying to what speak for herself ass. as to yeah and then he's like I'm oh so guess mad. <laughs> guess what i did think it was important that you had faith so you represented all of humanity which 95% of people believe in god which is i don't know if that's like hollywood science but it or hollywood statistics i don't know where that comes from but and then <laughs> And then he's like, oh, actually, I did it because I love you and I don't want you to leave. And I'm like, okay, so this is the smartest woman. She's quite literally discovered life on other planets. Like, let's just hold on. Jodie Foster has just discovered life on other planets. (laughs) And she has the opportunity to go communicate with that life. Go communicate in this 
absolutely pure place of of courage and adventure and curiosity and lust for science and all the right reasons and is there anything you can say against Jodie Foster in this film there is nothing and then he's like but I love you so I want to just keep you the possession of it I and then yeah. you're just like who are you again the it's <laughs> so his character is so annoying and I want just uh uh Cut him, I, cut him out i'm furious i'm furious yeah we'll we'll talk all about this and yeah. his hair his <laughs> every also i've never seen i've never seen less chemistry between two people oh their kiss oh, that oh. the, in front of the washington dc thing i forget what they're called <laughs> They they kiss in front of the Washington D.C. water puddle, and and it's so you're just like, Ugh, what is? Ugh. Can we get Jodie Foster out of here? Get her yeah. in the pod. Get her away yeah. from this man. Get her away from Matthew McConaughey. Truly. That is everything I thought. Get Jodie like time to go, or I'm good to go. Like, let's get okay, to go. okay to go. Okay to go. Yeah, Jodie Foster kissing Matthew McConaughey. I- I'm okay to go. Yeah, I'm okay to go. I'm writing that on my pad of paper beside the computer so that if I need to reference okay to go later in this podcast, I will be able to quickly you and relax. Yeah. You will be okay to go. <laughs> <laughs> it it is it is shocking how little chemistry they have. And then there's all these yeah. weird sustained moments where they're staring at each other for quite longer than would be human. And the kiss is that you you sort of notice it. They kind of pan to the left and let them kind of they, they rack focus really quickly. So you're like, eh, we don't need to see this. And right. anytime, like, oh. <laughs> yeah, every time they embrace, it's just like, let's get Jodie Foster's head on his shoulder so the camera can just look at her because she's so magnificent. Yeah, it was, the chemistry was bad. And also he's just, he's so problematic. That whole character is problematic. And the whole question of, you know, what a theologian's space is in the sci-fi world and challenging her and all of it. I mean, again, and this, I can't speak from experience because I, as I mentioned, am Canadian and not American, but there was just this this hyper sense of American, like God fearing, we are the ones we speak for this planet oh, yeah. moment. And, and you get that from so much science fiction. Uh, I mean, Besides the remarkable Angela Bassett in this film, this film is hella white and hella oh, yeah. American. Oh, yeah. And the, mm-hmm. the, I, I think Jodie Foster has a line that's so brilliant where she says, where, the, where the, the aliens talk in prime numbers, and she says something like, what, America now owns prime numbers? Like, no, it's international. Math <laughs> yeah. is international. And that was so great and a kind of um, uncharacteristic criticism of, I guess, the American space, military god complex thing i'm gonna get yeah. i'm gonna get in trouble do not invite no <laughs> no no we, we our fully listeners agree. uh will not be upset to hear this. okay good 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 okay so uh jamie what, what's your relationship and history with this movie um i had never seen this movie i think because i, I was uh I, I don't know when i would have seen it i think when it came out it definitely would have been too long to hold my attention but it's it a two and a half hour movie, correct? <laughs> it is still quite long. Uh, but I I um, grew up very, my, my grandfather was and is v- like a huge Carl Sagan head. And I mm-hmm. like growing up, I watched Cosmos with him. We had it like the VHS tapes and I, yeah. So, so I'm a fan of the 
Carl Sagan expanded universe, but I had never actually <laughs> seen this movie. And I, um, I was, I honestly like in, enjoyed it and was like more touched by it than I was expecting to be. It kind of took mm-hmm. me off guard because I was like, hmm, two and a half hour movie from 1997. I just don't know. That's a gamble. But I thought it was, I mean, there's plenty to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, I, I was like very captivated. Jodie Foster is like always incredible, but she like especially blew me away in that I'm like, wow, not again. I have a very short attention span. Not many actors can hold my attention for two and a half hours. <laughs> and she's just yeah. incredible. And I also am excited to talk about the production history of this movie because it's very Ooh. interesting. Yes. Um, Caitlin, what's your history with Contact? This was a movie that my family had on VHS. Is it one or two? I think it was only one of them. Brave. But it is long enough that... I don't know. Now I'm not remembering. I'm not remembering because I only watched this once. So like it was a movie that like my family had, I guess like maybe my brother watched it and my mom, but for some reason I, I don't know. This was also the year that Titanic came out. So as with many movies from 97. I was about to say, I mean, this was it. This was a year. I didn't have eyes for anything but Titanic. <laughs> so <laughs> I think there were like two VHS sets. We it was I definitely Titanic, obviously. Yeah. But then yeah, also yeah. I think Meet Joe Black. That's the only other movie oh. that I've never seen. I don't think anyone in my family ever watched it. I don't know if it was a gift or what, but <laughs> Meet Joe Black, two VHS. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I I truly don't remember if Contact was a, a one or two VHS tape scenario but no further questions. I do remember having it but I was I was too busy watching Titanic all the time to pay much <laughs> attention to contact although I think probably when I was like maybe 13 or 14 I watched it and there are two very distinct moments from the movie that were like seared into my brain and then I remembered nothing else uh, I remembered <laughs> Her dad, like material, like the alien materializing as her dad and talking to her. I remembered that. Mm-hmm. And then I remembered the kind of twist at the end where I didn't remember that it was Angela Bassett, but like the reveal that like 18 hours of static was recorded. Mm. She did go on the trip to Vega. That so, is a very satisfying moment. Yeah. And I mean, mm-hmm. Angela Bassett carries it, but it was, I was like, ooh, ooh. Cause I was so, fr- I mean, the preceding scene was so frustrating to watch. Uh, I know. Yeah. But I'm also like, Angela, did you contact Jodie Foster and tell her, like, and confirm <laughs> That's a good that question. this? Because we never, I don't know if, if, if Ellie knows that, like, you know? It's so funny. Those are the exact two moments that I remember the most as well. Like, absolutely. Yeah. The dad on the mm. beach and then that last moment. But did you tell you there was exactly 18 hours of static? And I had the same reaction. I remember finding my mom and being like did they tell her (laughs) (laughs) what do you think do you think she found out (laughs) james woods's reaction is so bizarre too where he's like oh that is interesting and you're like so what happened but it's like you know his his character is not going to be the one to admit that they're wrong but i was like i hope angela bassett stepped up we'll never know and that could have been a scene that passed the Bechdel test where, you know, if Angela Bassett calls Jodie Foster, she's like, hey, I got some good news for you. You were gone for 18 hours and we have the proof, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Instead, 
Instead, all they talk about is finding a dress for some sort of... Oh, I know. <laughs> to impress Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the that James Woods' reaction, his whole thing, his whole screaming at her at that, him getting up. I mean, I, again, I don't like talking shit about actors, but I'm going to talk shit about James Woods. It's like... Oh, he's James a, Woods, I feel like, is extremely fair game. Yeah, 100% yeah. fair game. He is not our target target audience or an ally, so I'm going to say <laughs> we're going to talk shit about him. And but, he's, a, yeah. he's an unrepentant Republican. He's uh, he's a bigot, and, and he, so, you know, fuck him. He's awful. Right. He's awful. He's awful. And uh, he, he just... Try, him trying to... What's the word? There's a word for it. Eat the... Um, uh, there's an acting word for schmacting, like uh, chew the scenery. He, oh, yeah. In that last scene, he's screaming at her. He's standing up. He's yelling at her. He's trying to James Woods the shit out of it. <laughs> and Jodie Foster is just Jodie Fostering so hard. She's just sitting there, tears in her eyes, standing in her strength and her purity and this like feeling of of wonder that she's trying to convey in this sort of the space between what is real and what is not real, what is science, what is faith, what is, oh, it's just like, I remember that scene. I remember her choking back tears and having mm. a hard time finding the words. And all I wish is she had then said, and then I figured out that pie is not in fact transcendental. And she did the circle <laughs> and all this stuff that's in the book. But uh, yeah, that moment with James Woods where he's badgering her, like yeah. it's not even... And you're like, how did you get so much screen time in this damn movie? Like, you're who are you? Yeah, why? You're why? Just... Like, get rid of James Woods. Bring in more Angela Bassett. Like, ugh. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, let me do the recap of the movie, and then we'll get even further into the discussion. Actually, let's take a quick break first, and then yeah. we'll come back to recap. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. Kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic Podcasts 
as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com and we're back. Okay. So, okay. You know the very end of Men in Black where like the camera keeps like pulling out from New York City and then like the US and then planet Earth and then the mm-hmm. solar system and then it turns out that the galaxy is one of several tiny little marbles that aliens are playing mm, with yeah. and then you realize how small and insignificant you are. The way Men in Black ends is exactly how contact opens. Wow. So that's my first brilliant observation. My point of reference there was the end of How the Grinch Stole Christmas when you find out the whole movie (sighs) took place on a snowflake. Wow. Jim Carrey lives on a snowflake. (laughs) Amazing. That is amazing. Then we meet Ellie, a young girl who is sending out radio transmissions and trying to see how far she can reach. She lives with her dad. Baby Jenna Malone. Oh my gosh. I love Jenna Malone. That is who that is. she was in it. That did not even register for me. Yeah. Then we cut to Ellie, who has grown up to be Jodie Foster. She is now an astronomer trying to make contact with intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. Uh, She's working on this project called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, with a few colleagues, uh, most notably Kent. Mm-hmm. And then one day she meets Palmer Joss. That is Matthew McConaughey. First of all, what a name. <laughs> what a name. I think that is a name from the book, though. I'm going to say that now. Mm, Palmer yeah. Joss, I feel like I read and I was like, yeah, that's a book name. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's very much a book name. It's a book name. I have the book synopsis in front of me because I was so, I'm so interested in like the differences you were spotting, Kelly. So I'll try to... Try to follow along and mm, see, keep us yeah, see where yeah. things really go awry. <laughs> so Palmer Joss is a theologian. He's trying to interview Ellie's boss, this guy Drumlin, played by Tom Skerritt, uh, who is an asshole. Then Ellie and Palmer, they look at the stars together. They kiss. They have sex. And then we learn via their pillow talk, as well as some flashbacks, that Ellie's dad died when she was nine years old. In the, one of the most, it's the melodrama of that mm. sequence, slow motion, baby Jenna Out of alone. control. <laughs> oh, it was a lot. Yeah. It was very, very 90s where it's like, oh, the slow motion trauma scene. I know this film convention. <laughs> yeah. Or the just general 90s convention of kids, parents dying mm. and kids having to deal with that. That's a big 90s, yeah. early 2000, like let's see this kid's gonna have this kid's gonna be an orphan right right full-on orphan yeah and yet we're not going to address how she survives who raises yeah, her who after raised- that <laughs> how she has money i mean maybe she's just a, a very I was privi- curious about that too. privileged white girl and they're sort of like it has that glean of 90s movies where they're like she's white so we don't have to explain 
her cultural background. The middle class sort of kind of exists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just a general glean of she's fine. She's mm-hmm. like going to be fine. She, she was both of her parents died. She has a huge house. I don't know. Right. That was like especially <laughs> glaring to me where the, I don't know what this character's name is. He shows up in a little bit. Mr. Mr. Plot billionaire or like what? Oh yeah. Haddon. The pl- m- plot man. Yeah. Plotman mm-hmm. summarizes her life to us for some reason, but also <laughs> skips over like how she, who she lived with, what she did, how she survived between yeah. like age yeah. 10 and college. Mr. Mm-hmm. Plot, I swear to God. Yeah. Some aunt is just like eye rolling in the, like just, just sitting there being like, I flipping raised you. So you're not even going to mention me. <laughs> nice family member erasure. Not nice. <laughs> Right. Or did she grow up in the foster system, the Jodie foster system? She would have had to. She, wow. There's no way around it. Uh, <laughs> she, I will say as much as I despise this Palmer Joss love thing that pops up like once every half hour or so in this mm-hmm. movie, I did appreciate that Ellie initiated their uh, contact, shall we say? <gasps> oh, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, I feel like you don't you don't get a lot of that. You don't get a lot of um, yeah. initiation from a female character where she's just like, do you want to get out of here? I was like, True. all right, Jody, good for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, go. Let's do it. And then she has sex with him and leaves him high and dry. And he's like, what? Well, what? What about me? That's another thing, you know, like she, she, it's on her terms. The first time it's mm-hmm. on her terms. The second mm-hmm. time he right. literally tries to possess her and stop her from living out her dreams. But the first time uh-huh. it's, uh, it's great. It's great. <laughs> yep. She's like, I just want to have sex with you. It's not moralized. They're not like, you know, it's, it's actually sort of breathtakingly unmoralized that mm-hmm. she's just doing this. And then she sees his number and she's like, you know what? I'm going to leave this number here. I don't need to. I don't need to keep this in my pocket and hope mm. for something else. I'm just going to... And you know, that was those were good times before the internet and before social media where you could just forget the person's paper that wrote their number on it. And then... <laughs> oh my God, you can just disappear them from your life. <laughs> <laughs> like oh. how easy she leaves it for the next person who's staying in that little shack. I, I also think there's um, a moment where, speaking of how white this film is, but... When we meet Matthew Mahonic, uh, Palmer Joss, when we meet him, he makes some sort of comment about why they're in, I think they're in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. I think that's where they are. Yeah. And yes. he's like, yeah. well, what does science mean to these people? Like you scientists come in here and you take up this space in these, in these cultures, in these communities that, that, that the science and space exploration doesn't serve in some sort of way. And he sort of sets mm-hmm. up this very important conversation and then it's just all god from there it's just all you know uh-huh. ontological questions about theology from there but it's completely just completely dropped and i didn't i forgot yeah. that moment i forgot about that whole sequence and it's never they never get back to it and i wonder if the i can't i want to reread the book and find out whether or not they deal with that of the question of who is science ex- who is space exploration for and Jodie Foster of course answers that question because she's marvelous but <laughs> who is it for you know who it's, it's for anyone who feels alone that's kind of the the thesis maybe of her her alien dad and her I don't know uh-huh right yeah. <laughs> I mean I also thought that he was uh that Palmer Joss god I hate saying that name uh we all do <laughs> his 
was uh, was also very like in that same conversation is very dismissive of the people who who live locally because he's like, oh, they don't they don't know what the you know satellite dishes are for. They think it's for they're like basically just like making this kind of like a side comment to say like oh people around here have no idea what what you guys are doing and then mm-hmm. and then like you said continues into this his whole god tangent and it's like well if you're going to set a movie here set it here don't you mm-hmm. like I, I feel like we, we talk about that all the time of like using somewhere and 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 the people that are native there as set dressing rather than including them meaningfully in the plot which is just Mm -hmm. always always frustrating yeah yeah i mean they did that with i remember in the book when the second machine or maybe it's maybe there aren't two machines i don't remember there's there I, i it's possible that the whole first machine and then the evangelical uh, Christian who bombs it. It doesn't happen in the book. I, I can't remember, but mm-hmm. I do know that the second machine or the first um, is built in Japan and the relationship with the Japanese government and the Japanese scientists and engineers is much more a part of the book. And you'll notice oh, that okay. it's just represented by these two Japanese men stand like leading Jodie Foster into this, um, into the pod <laughs> and right. they say yeah. nothing. And they're just, they behave in this sort of, you know, subservient, they're portrayed as this kind of subservient group of people. I'm like, they they don't even react to the fact that they're standing over this obelisk looking spinning thing. Mm -hmm. It's just so done as like conversation worthy, I would say. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) They're not, they're not treating the, the, as you said, like the, the places that they're shooting this with as anything other than just set dressing, which is very... 90s, early 2000s, Hollywood. Yeah, it mm-hmm. certainly yeah. is. Uh, okay, so then Drumlin pulls his funding from the project because he thinks it's a waste of time. So Ellie and Kent and some other colleagues pick up and head to New Mexico to lease some government satellites there. And Ellie helps them get funding from investors. We then cut to four years later. They are about to lose that funding or like Drumlin is going to come back and try to like take over the lease of the something. I think something, uh, something, something. like anytime they run out of funding, I honestly, these scenes kind of blurred for me where it's like, anytime they lose funding, Jodie Foster throws on a turtleneck and it's like, all right, who do I need to talk to? And and then eventually it happens. Yeah. Yeah. The funding narrative is sort of repetitive. I don't, I didn't remember that. Yeah. But I know Hagen, the guy, the rich guy in space, is a big part of the book as well, but oh, got it, okay. yeah. But it is sort of creepy that he's like, <laughs> I know everything about you. In the movie. Yeah, very, very strange. Yeah, but yeah, the funding falls through. She gets a turtleneck. All of a sudden, guess what? Funding's back. Funding's <laughs> right. back. But then it seems like contact has been made by aliens from a star that's twenty six light years away called Vega. They transmit prime numbers between two and one hundred and one. Because math is a universal language. Da Vinci code. Wow. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> um, then the Vega aliens send a video transmission of Hitler announcing the opening Olympic Games in Berlin because that was like the first powerful television transmission to be sent into space from Earth. So the aliens recorded it and sent it back to be like, I see you. I hear you. Hello. And then everyone's like, this is not representative of what we're trying to do here. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. 
Then Ellie and friends continue to decode the transmission, and they discover that the Vega aliens have sent thousands of pages of data, but it's all in like, you know, alien code that they don't understand. So they have to decrypt it and they need like a primer, like a key to the code. Meanwhile, James Woods is this, I th- he's like he's the there. national security advisor. I don't know. Fuck James Woods. Seriously. Oh my God. We don't have time to unpack all the fuck James Woods, but yeah. fuck James Woods. Yeah. Man. Uh, so he he's giving Ellie a hard time. The press is reporting on contact being made. Uh, there's a conversation, like kind of religion versus science that's being had between a lot of people. Um, Palmer Joss is on Larry King talking about his, his book about... Yet another Larry appearance. I feel like ever. I, I mean, L- Larry's everywhere. Larry's he's everywhere. everywhere in, this is not... In media. Still not the best Larry. That's still not still the best B-movie. Larry because that's B-movie, yes. <laughs> B. Larry King. <laughs> then Dr. Haddon, a.k.a. John Hurt, the eccentric billionaire, pays Ellie a visit. And he has figured out the primer, like, a.k.a. how to decode the data that the aliens sent. Mm. And with this, they are able to determine that this data is a blueprint for a machine of some kind, They don't know what it's supposed to do at first, but it becomes clear that it's meant to be a transport to bring a human into space, presumably to make direct contact with the Vega aliens. Mm -hmm. So then some government officials have made a list of a few candidates who might be the person to go to Vega. One of them is Ellie. Uh, One of them is her former boss, Drumlin, and he he really, really wants to go. I want to kick his ass. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then also there's a rogue Jake Busey just kind mm, of oh, yes. looping over. And this is also, Caitlin and I were talking about this uh, last night, how Jake Busey in the 90s, he just, he just, he wanted to be in a space movie. It didn't matter what was <laughs> happening in the space movie. Starship Troopers, Contact, he was using his particular kind of nepotism to be in space movies. <laughs> I honestly yes. want that particular kind of nepotism so bad. Like if I could just I love that for him. I love that for him, but I want it for me. That's the truth. Yeah. That's what I want. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So then it's time to choose who goes. Ellie is passed over because she's an atheist slash agnostic. Which Palmer Joss like Ugh. doxes her as yeah. an atheist <laughs> in a public forum. Mm-hmm. And because they think that ninety five percent of people on earth believe in some form of higher power they want to pick someone who represents most of humanity so she gets passed over uh and instead drumlin gets selected to go and then they run a test of the machine that they have built but this religious extremist aka jake Busey, aka gary Busey's son breach of security (laughs) sets off a bomb which destroys the machine and kills drumlin among many others so then it seems like, okay, that's it. No one's going to go to Vega until Dr. Haddon shows up again and reveals to Ellie that a second machine was built in secret in Japan and they want Ellie to go to Vega. This so. damn plot guy, he, <laughs> like, I was just like, I maybe he's a character that 
makes more sense in the book than he did mm-hmm. in the movie but he really just did seem he was like giving me plot witch energy in this like where he would just show up like when mm-hmm. when Jodie Foster was like really in a bind he would be like do 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 from space and be like by the way here's the yeah. plot point you need and then yeah. and then and then he just dies when he runs out of plot points <laughs> it's really sad real old wise men patron for an, a younger woman energy as well like very very, mm-hmm. very like don't worry I've seen something in you that no one else has seen and you're my girl like you're my you know he also is right. like stalking her and, and he's also like, stalking oh. her putting stuff in her bedroom what does he have home video footage of her as a child like I was like where yeah. did, where did, get did that? get that <laughs> where did he get that I mean we still don't know where she grew up so thanks I guess mm-hmm. but it's true definitely yeah. nullifies some of Jodie Foster's get up and go uh agency and her like you know tearing this down and making this happen i mean there are just some wonderful moments where jody is the only smart person in the room or the person who knows like when she mm-hmm. notices what's his name as the evangelical yeah oh, she knows that jake Busey. Yeah. yeah 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 jake Busey thought he was so sneaky and what's interesting i will note with present day context when the newscaster covers the story of the bombing bombing they they call him a terrorist they call him yes i noticed that too yeah you never see i I mean and this is like a problem to this day of like yeah uh declaring white terrorists to be what they are yeah or white male evangelical terrorists to say christian terrorists it was such a a weird interesting moment of like oh yeah this is interesting how we've mutilated the word terrorism to mean essentially people of color from different countries you know it was such an incredibly weird moment i was like oh yeah mm-hmm. blast from the past yeah i made note of that too yeah i hate i mean it's i hate that we live in a world where that is like of note but it absolutely is i was like i was like 1997 okay 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 to go <laughs> okay to go <laughs> <laughs> okay oh it took me a second i don't know why i i totally forgot <laughs> okay back to the recap so th- yeah so then <laughs> Uh, Ellie prepares for the trip. Palmer Joss is like, I don't want you to go. And she's like, I'm going. But she also forgives him. He apologizes for robbing her, like very near robbing her of her dream. But then she's like, it's cool because, you know, the whole Jake Busey thing. Like, I I feel like that was the (laughs) subtext of it. She's like, well, you know, it all worked out. I was like, mm, we need a longer conversation about this. Right. So she is launched into space. She goes through a series of wormholes. She ends up on this like astro beach. It looks like a screensaver. It looks, yeah. yeah. Her dad seems to materialize in front of her, but it turns out that it's a Vega alien who had downloaded her subconscious and sort of like is this ambassador who has taken on the form of her dad to more effectively communicate with her. Mm. They have a little chat about like people of earth and how they feel so lost and alone, but now they can know that they're not alone. And this is just a first of like many steps of like contact among different, you know, terrestrial beings. And then she is pretty quickly after that returned to earth. Mm -hmm. But back on earth, they're like, Ellie, there was a malfunction. You didn't go anywhere. And she's like, um, yeah, I did. I talked to the aliens. Obviously like the machine opened up a wormhole and I traveled through space time. I was gone for like 18 hours. The aliens was my dad. (laughs) I went to, I was um... on a, I was on a beach, five-star resort. 
that look like a it looks like her painting right she she yeah. paints that yeah yeah mm-hmm. she, she was like i was i went to pensacola but uh, in the middle of space and then they're like um we don't believe you there's no evidence of this nothing was recorded except for static but how much static right yeah can we i just need to i feel like i need to pause just to talk about the expectation the expectation that that dinky little thing they put on her head <laughs> the, to withstand what, what a span i just i remember being like they're like okay here we go and they open up this very official suitcase with like foam in it where they're like okay we're gonna give you the device and it looks like my walkman from 1995 <laughs> I was it looks like something like like the gwen stefani mic like for, for a stadium tour like, who is this through a wormhole we're through supposed to get reception here and they put it on her head with this little silver headband and i'm thinking mm-hmm. like they don't even put a bobby pin in to secure it nothing it's just gonna <laughs> no. stay on her head during mm-hmm. this wormhole-esque it makes me it and then the expectation that she is responsible for the evidence that she's responsible. He's yelling at her. Where's your yeah. evidence? You don't have any evidence. I'm like, well, that's on you, bro. You sent her with the the like the most cracked little piece of technology. Right? Why is it on her? And her chair like blows up. Oh my god. The chair that wasn't even supposed to be there. Yeah. Cause she's like, there's nothing in the design specs for this like chair and the harness and trust the aliens. It's like, yeah, we understand why, because it like just I don't know, implodes. Yeah, yeah. She's like, trust the aliens, trust my dad, this is gonna be fine. But the the evidence thing just absolutely yeah. that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Nope, because yeah, James Woods is like screaming at her and like being like, You don't have any proof and she's like, I don't know. But then Palmer Joss is like, Well, I believe her. And you're like, Wow, brave, amazing, <laughs> feminist icon, Palmer Joss, and we're just like <laughs> <laughs> And then James Woods and Angela Bassett have that conversation where Angela Bassett's like, yes, only static was recorded from this supposed trip to Vega. But James Woods, don't you think it's weird that 18 hours was recorded? And then he goes, yeah, I guess. Yes, I guess it's weird. (laughs) And then the film ends with Ellie continuing her work on searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. And that's the end of the movie. Let's take another quick break and we'll come back for more discussion. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 
Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com and we're back. Um, we've we've talked about some stuff already, but there are mm-hmm. there are some things I want to kind of dig into a little bit. I want to do a quick overview of the production history mm, of this please. movie. Yes, um, because there are some very nineties uh, things that you'll notice um, <laughs> popping out. So this is a movie that has a majority white male crew at at, at the top, directed yep. by Robert Zemeckis. Uh, screenplay is by James V. Hart and Michael Goldenberg. Uh, but the story is by Carl Sagan and Anne Druyan, mm-hmm. who uh, were not married, I, I don't think, at the time of this story, but they, they were later mm-hmm. um, later married. But what I didn't mm-hmm. realize about this was that uh, Contact was a book from 1985 that was turned into a movie, but it was originally envisioned as a movie. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. someone was like, oh, Carl Sagan, actually, maybe if you write a book, it'll be easier for us to to get it produced. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was in production for a really, really, really long time. Mm-hmm. A female producer was the one who got it over the edge. Uh, Linda Obst, shout out. Uh, she Ooh. was friends with Carl Sagan and really you know, advocated for this project to exist. Mm-hmm. Carl Sagan wrote the story with Andrean, who is like an incredible filmmaker, uh, scientist, researcher in her own right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know, we don't have like, a t- you know, all the time in the world to get into Carl Sagan. But as a, a very prominent sci- scientist, he did, um, as far as my research indicated, was a strong advocate for diversity in general in the science fields but he was uh, an advocate for women there's like this amazing anecdote in the 80s of him approaching i <laughs> it's such a silly name that i'm like this can't be a thing the explorers club apparently it's a very famous uh, astronomers group and it was mm. all male all the way into the 1980s and he wrote a strongly worded letter uh to say why the fuck aren't women allowed in this group mm. like hmm what's going on um go carl yeah so carl feminist icon also andrean you know i'm sure that she she was uh, an advocate as well obviously <laughs> and and uh the, this is his only novel and they you know he and andrean 
took special care to ensure that there was a female protagonist in the novel and also in the movie, which is also, you know, relatively unusual in sci-fi to mm-hmm. this day. Uh, mm-hmm. Ellie Arroway was based on a real person, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Jill Tarter. Uh, the SETI Institute is a real thing. Who knew? Not me. Uh, <laughs> Which she founded, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, she founded. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jodie Foster like worked with her. Um, so the, the very 90s thing that happens here, and this will kind of get us into some of the book versus movie changes that have been made, was there was a male producer... Uh, mm-hmm. Peter Goober, <laughs> which uh, let's just get into he's it. He's really going to live up to his name. <laughs> he so so after the book was published, apparently the, the mother gets killed off very early, which is just like such an American movie thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of that, Peter Goober was pitching all these things to like quote unquote flesh out Ellie's character more, but um, he was really advocating for her to have an estranged teenage son, mm-hmm. which Carl and Anne were like, no, no, no. Uh, no. <laughs> but um, Peter Goober says, like, uh, quote, here was a woman consumed with the idea that there was something out there worth listening to. But the one thing she could never make contact with was her own child. To me, mm. that's what the film had to be about, which is like the most male executive note about a female mm-hmm. protagonist. <laughs> that I've ever heard where it's just like, oh, yeah. well, if it's a woman, it has to be related to motherhood. Yeah. And Deal with your mommy issues elsewhere, Goober. Take them elsewhere. Right. I'm like, yeah. I'm like can we like just take this to your therapist? Um, <laughs> and yeah, th- there was just kind of a, a lot of uh, back and forth in terms of how Ellie should be characterized. Mm-hmm. But luckily, Carl and Anne, I think, took every stand they could. I'm very, I wasn't able to find information about like, at what point did Palmer Joss become like a stud? Uh, a, a McConaughey, you mean? <laughs> a a full on ninety seven McConaughey. Yeah. But yeah, there 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 was like a lot of changes made to the story. Some of them, the proposed changes, were pretty sexist and reductive, and many of them didn't make it to the movie. Some of them did. I also read that it was pitched that Ellie, the movie, would end with like her having a baby. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, that was another goober pitch. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that was a goober. That's forever now. That was, a, that was a goober. It has goober written all over it. He really goobed that one up. This goober just means like anyone trying to just add goob to anything. Any female story, they're trying to goob it up. My One of my favorite things, because we talk about this quite a bit of... Uh, particularly when it's male writers who are just writing outside of their own experience. It's like, well, just talk to someone, like have a, the proper consultants on on the movies that you're working on at the very, very, very least. Mm-hmm. And that does happen in this. They So uh, Jill Tarter, Jodie Foster, and I guess the, the writers and, and Carl and Anne work with her. And she was a consultant on this story specifically not just for the scientific elements, but to uh, talk about the uh, careers of women scientists in her experience between the 50s and 70s. And I guess a lot of the kind of specific instances of Ellie being spoken over, opportunities being taken from her, her work kind of being made to seem less impactful than it actually was, was Mm -hmm. pulled from Jill Tarter's experience. So go Dr. Jill. Go Dr. Jill. She said on her first day as like a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley in the mid 60s, she was told by the head of the astronomy department that the only reason that she was there 
was because, quote, all the smart men got drafted for Vietnam. Yep. So, oh. yep. Uh, unsurprisingly, Woof. she had to put up with uh, a lot of sexism. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. <laughs> Shocker. I'm really glad she was, like, meaningfully included. I mean, as much as I'm like, mm, can't we get some female screenwriters on this? Mm-hmm. I, I am very glad that her experiences were, like, really taken into account on the, the consulting level. Um, yeah. And I feel like that it enriches the the movie. Oh, absolutely. And I think you can feel how much, I mean, just be, knowing the, the pedigree that is Jodie Foster, there's no way she wouldn't have absolutely absorbed everything this woman felt and said. And, and like, I think my, I mean, when I, I don't remember the religious plot. I don't remember Matthew McConaughey. I don't remember all the other stuff. What I remember is being a young girl watching this and being like, holy cow, she loves science. Holy cow, she becomes this... It was so empowering growing up. Like, I remember Mm -hmm. that moment when she's outside and she's, like, losing her financing and she's like, screw it, I'm taking the computer box outside and I'm going to listen on my head of my car. And then (laughs) she hears it and she's driving that car like a bat out of hell and she's, Mm -hmm. you know, she's spitting uh, coordinates and crap and there's like a 10-minute scene where the audience doesn't understand fuck all. Like there's just no way unless you're a scientist you know what the hell they're talking about. But even watching it last night, I was... It's so captivating. It's so captivating. And what I I remember how I felt as a young girl watching this. I remember her being like... I hear it. I I know and her the constant attempt for her to believe to have um the benefit of the doubt in the aliens for her to be like no, they wouldn't have done this if they didn't say they needed a chair. There this isn't a weapon. Like why would they, you know, and just and that spirit and energy and and mm-hmm. it's interesting because I had read that um Andrew and Carl Sagan had written this, as you said, as a feature first, and then they were like, oh, we can't get this feature made, so let's make it into a book, and then he wrote the book. But it's, it's. I wonder what the differences between those two screenplays would have been, because at the end of the film, it says, for Carl, and you're kind of like, mm-hmm. Anne Druin's participation, it says, it says story by the two of them, but her participation is sort of... Well, I- yeah. I do think it's because he died before the movie came out. I'm pretty sure oh. that that's why the movie is okay. dedicated mm. to him specifically. Okay. Um, yeah, because he died in late 96. Oh, wow. Like mm-hmm. right, right when they were probably finishing Probably while they were in production. Like, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, well, that's sad. Okay, never mind. I just was like, yeah. where did... Because it's, it's now become such a Carl Sagan, like it's his project where the story of the two of them writing it is kind of also special but yeah especially because i mean there is there tends to be an erasure of like there will be a famous man and then he will collaborate with a woman maybe it's a romantic partner maybe it's just like a professional partner for like much of his career Mm -hmm. but people tend to only remember the man and the woman often gets erased from the narrative i'm thinking with john carpenter and oh my god I don't remember her name because her name gets erased all the time. Let me figure it out. Is it Deborah? Deborah Hill? Is that it? Deborah Hill. Yeah. Yeah. One of many examples of this. So yeah. yeah. Especially in the science world, like it's it's rampant. Like Marie Curie dealt with this. The if you female scientists releasing information and and making just monster discoveries that men mm. have taken credit for. Like it's just and you, and I think they 
they show the heartbreak of that in the film with that guy constantly interrupting her and taking credit for her and and somehow having a press conference with Bill Clinton while he was in office. Like Bill Clinton is hella the president at this point and he's in yeah. the movie. How did that happen? I guess so I I did some research on that because I was like he did because first of all fuck Bill Clinton right? right but but on but on top of that I'm like did he film scenes for that movie I don't think that he did I think that they repurposed existing speeches he'd made and wrote around it oh, to yeah. make it work oh, that makes sense in the movie which there was there seemed to be some controversy about at the time which is kind of like I don't know I was kind of like shut up but they were like well what if what if viewers think that it's a documentary if it includes the actual president at the time I'm like well Good then I Lord. guess that they like need to read a book it's very clearly a movie <laughs> um but yeah he I think that, that like all the CNN anchors like did film scenes for the movie but Bill Clinton didn't they just were like "Ooh, what are clips of him sa- talking about stuff that sounds like it could be about aliens yeah it's seamless enough that it it, it works. works yeah <laughs> it works but yes uh yeah. Andrian uh shout out to her she's still working today she's worked on the the Cosmos reboot she's been like had complete creative control over it won a bunch of Emmys for it amazing and she rocks she rocks yeah. I mean, women in science fiction is, I mean, my whole Ursula K. Le Guin as, as, as the probably the most prominent science yeah. fiction writer in my life and also just a, an incredible intellect in the gender, performative gender, gender space, feminism space. Like she, she is one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time and, and she's so remarkably female and talks about all, most of her protagonists are women and it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it. Women are just so fantastic in this space, and because it's science fiction, you don't always. It's the future. It's it's a hope for a different time where patriarchy isn't soaked in everything we're doing. So you can have these pockets of, uh, you know, like a, a escape or narrative transport in a way that really gives an opportunity to kind of unpack gender issues in the sci-fi space. So the fact that women would be detectives in that space is. It makes sense to me. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. I also, I love that you were saying that the ending of the film had like, maybe she has a baby, maybe this. And, and you know, mm-hmm. he's not, a, Palmer Joss is not in that last shot. Like he's not watching her yeah. with, while she, you know what I mean? Like I was, I was like, oh, that's good because we don't really know. First of all, I don't know how they have such an intimate relationship. When they slept together once, she doesn't see him for like five years. Years and then, ago, yeah. And then, and then he <laughs> just kiboshes her her dreams she forgives him because she's just so kind I guess and then he's not there in that final sequence where she's inspiring young kids and I remember that when I was younger being like that's hella inspiring (laughs) I remember being like this works this is working on me I'm a kid I'm watching this this is this is hella working um but he's not there thank god god yeah their relationship is we touch on this, but I'm pretty sure it was like a studio notes thing. It does not appear to, it's I didn't, exactly, I didn't read the, yeah. I didn't read the book, but according to the Wikipedia synopsis of the book, he is a character, but he does not appear as though there's any romantic relationship between them. So for him to be introduced in this context in the movie is like this potential romantic prospect, which like, I mean, she just, like, has a one-night stand with him, and then she's just like, I don't need to talk to him again. Like, we clearly don't have that much in common. He's a theologian. I'm an agnostic scientist. Like, we're not very compatible here. But then he keeps, like, creeping up and, like, like, I'm just like, it's one thing if they, like, have a friends with benefits thing, which is, like, 
what it seems like Ellie wants, but then he's like, as we've discussed, like, I love you. I'm going to steal your yeah. dreams away from you. I am claiming ownership over you. And it's just like, leave her alone. My crush is more important than your dreams. And you're like, <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, <laughs> not just your dreams, but like the greatest moment in humanity's history. Like, it, it's not just yeah. Jodie Foster's dreams. It's quite literally, she is the one person who has to go talk to aliens for the first time in the human species existence. He's like, but what about my crush? Yeah, and what's especially frustrating about that is that, like, yeah, she too easily forgives him, I feel like. Mm. Once she learns, once he reveals to her, oh, the real reason I voted for you not to go to Vega was because of my little crush. And and she should have been like, okay, thanks for telling me. Now I know to never fucking talk to you again. (laughs) You asshole. I was also, I mean, particularly with that studio, like very studio notesy relationship. I just, first of all, this movie just could have generally been a little shorter. Mm. And that space that Palmer Joss takes up, I feel like could have been way better used by giving Ellie a woman to talk to. Mm. And to, like, because I understand that, like, you know, in her workplace, it, it, you know, there are other female scientists. I wish that she had someone to talk to at work. Mm-hmm. But if that is like not possible for story reasons or because of the life experience that you're pulling from, from Dr. Jill and on and on, then it's like, it's a movie. You can include other women for her to have friendships and meaningful relationships with. But mm-hmm. I feel like instead of using the area that we're given in this movie to build out Ellie's inner life. It's like dad and love interest. And Mm -hmm. there's no, and it sounds like, I mean, it's, it's extra frustrating Kelly hearing that, that her mom is present in the book and there is a relationship that we have to just kind of build her out outside of how she relates to other men. And occasionally Angela Bassett, who also doesn't get enough to do. Right. Um, The fact that she was barely in my recap speaks to like, yeah, yeah. she's not an unimportant character, but she's not so important that she's really influencing major like narrative story beats. She shows up like halfway through. She shows up. The film is just white people until like an hour and a half in and then it's Angela yeah. Bassett and then that's pretty much it it's not and you don't ex- you don't know you don't know what she wants you don't know why she's she you don't know what her job is you don't know what her opinion is in fact every time anyone expresses an opinion her her opinion is can you guys just stop arguing like can you can you calm down you don't ever mm-hmm. find out what Angela Bassett's character what the fabric of her character is what makes her tick nothing you just you just know that she's like the president's mouthpiece and because we couldn't afford the real Bill Clinton, we have Angela Bassett sort of like talking for him, but there's no real, we don't, they don't give her anything. And the only conversation she has with Jodie Foster is girlfriend, I need to dress, which is hella yeah. problematic. <laughs> which is, fr- it's so fr- cause it's, it would have been so cool to build out that relationship between those two characters because they're coming from very different places. You get like little tastes of it where I like when, when Angela Bassett's character, Rachel is introduced, she's just like, Oh fuck. The alien sent us a clip of Hitler and Jodie Foster's like, no, 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 no. There's like, there's all this, Mm -hmm. you know, like they're, they're coming from very different places and it would have been cool to explore that. Like, you know, Angela Bassett is like beholden to this, you know, governmental bureaucracy and Mm Jodie Foster is, 
like has this totally and it's like well that what's going on there like let's get matthew mcconaughey the fuck out of here there's like better characters for her to be interacting with. okay to go yeah <laughs> okay to, go. Okay to yeah. go out of the story um yeah yeah there's a really quick moment that i think could have been just like drawn out and and explored a bit more where and maybe i'm even like misinterpreting this but it seems like rachel angela bassett's character is kind of advocating for ellie to be kept in control of the project because james woods is all like Mm. let's militarize this yeah and she's like no 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 like for now ellie is in charge still yeah and that would have been i would have liked to just see more women lifting up other women here because as we've kind of touched on already there's this like recurring motif a theme throughout the movie of men taking credit for women's work and Mm. this is especially true of drumlin who keeps like swooping in and when someone's like okay and now the person who's the lead on the project who made this discovery Ellie thinks that she's about to get called up. She's got cue cards. We think she is. (sighs) But then they call up Drumlin and he takes the credit for this discovery for the most part. And then that little speech he gives her before right before he blows up. I'm like, bye. (laughs) He's like, you know, it sucks that like you probably think we live in a meritocracy, but we just don't. So see ya. About to go take your dream. You're like fuck you and like i was yeah. like oh man i hope he explodes and then he did <laughs> he did and it's interesting it's interesting that the film sort of positions all of this like religion narrative of like you know the person who goes to meet the aliens should represent all humanity therefore believe in god but it becomes clear that drummond only said that he was doing it for god to sort of be political and get the position and it, yeah. i think it was a really interesting critique of how po- politicians and people in power will sort of ride that party line will sort of placate the religious base in order to get political gains it was sort of an interesting thing and he kind of admits it to her he's like i'm sorry that i know you were honest but sometimes i'm butchering it but he says something like sometimes honesty is not how you get ahead or something like that but uh, he's basically like don't hate the player hate the game yeah don't hate the player yeah Yeah, that's yeah okay to go that's for sure time to blow up (laughs) yeah Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of selecting one person to represent all of humanity. And the only like topic that gets discussed is like religion, really. I know. And they're like, we want someone who believes in God. And the person who ends up originally being selected is a white, able-bodied, upper-class cis man. From America. From America. And then it's a cis, able-bodied white woman who is highly educated middle class from America. So what I would like to propose, you know, people of Earth basically should have been like, okay, Vega aliens, I see your one person space transport and I raise you a 100 person space vehicle that can carry a larger group of people who are actually more representative of mm-hmm. the earth. <laughs> Kelly, you were saying that more people do go in, in the yeah. book, right? Five people go in the book. And I believe it's like from a diverse representation of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and each of them have, this is again, I'm going to get in trouble with the sci-fi fans, but I think each of them has their own like beach experience where they each are visited by a moniker or phantom of, of a memory that makes them feel mm-hmm. more comfortable. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, 
I will say this though, and I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I do think the film does a good job of showing the moments where a female scientist is being stepped on and and disregarded and, and underestimated and all that. But the whole conversation, the whole campaign about whether or not it should be Jodie Foster or Dr. Ellie going on this trip, I, I do feel like they sort of... I mean, the reality is there would be so much sexism around that, the the fanfare of it and the the news coverage of it and like whether or not a woman should go or a man like that mm-hmm. was completely not and and what the virtues of having a female go versus a male like what the the type of dis- diplomacy that women are by a, a sad default taught their whole lives to diffuse and to be you know be good at at a sort of more maternal maternal imperative experience nurturing, with, yeah. nurturing and and represent the human yeah. race because and so they don't really that that's just completely not present. It's just like, yeah, it would be in America if there was a couple women who were nominated for the campaign and men, it would just be all fair game. Well, we know it, it wouldn't be. And that's like, right. and I think that all the religious, as you said, it's all about religion. Well, if it is about religion and knowing how gendered the religious space can be, especially when coming up with like the one Messiah-esque person who's going to talk to the aliens I don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel like they kind of just glossed over that. Yeah. Jody's not sitting there going, they're not picking me because I'm a woman, which is would be my first thought. <laughs> my first like Right. Which yeah. which I feel like is kind of partially implied in in mm-hmm. the text too because she's being steamrolled by all her male superiors basically. Mm-hmm. Like I I mean, it's I I get that like if it's one person who can go, it's like, well, she discovered it. So like I she know. Should, right. like <laughs> I also, this reminded me of um, an amazing work by friend of the cast, Marsha Belsky, that has to do with sexism in space travel. Oh, yes. Which the 100 Tampons song, uh, which if you haven't (laughs) heard it, you got to hear it. But it's based around this uh, this anecdote where NASA thought Sally Ride needed 100 tampons to go into space for a week, quote unquote, just to be safe. Like it's (laughs) there is I mean, and the further back you go, the the worse it is. But Mm -hmm. there was a clear precedent for uh sexism and just a complete no no understanding of Mm -hmm. of menstruating people at all 100 (laughs) tampons really um it's it's a bop we'll link it in the description uh it's really good it's a bop Um, yeah yeah i do i do wish that there that um it's kind of it's i don't know i mean the the sexism that she is facing is definitely present but it's like you don't really hear her talk about it very much it's interesting yeah it's more if there it's were women more... for her to talk to maybe mm. oh, good yeah point. It, it does seem a bit more subtle because it never gets like specifically named or you never have someone like drumlin being like who's gonna believe you you silly woman women right. can't do science which is fine which is good because that would be crummy writing right <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah it does get kind of glossed over but i think there's also something interesting about like no one's like oh you can't do science you mm. woman and for there to be representation of that on screen where like people still take her seriously for the most part and acknowledge that she is a brilliant scientist and don't really bring gender into it, even though it mm. might not be the most realistic thing all the time. I still think there's something interesting about just like allowing that to be seen totally by people. 100%. Yeah. I guess I just wish that maybe Jody 
annotates it. She's aware of what's going on. Like, it's like mm-hmm. she's there, there's all these things happening to her. And there, this is the moment where Drummond takes this, the podium in front of the, and with the president. And yeah. there, there is this feeling of immediate heartbreak and loss, but it's, that's just how it is. She's just upset. And that, and then there's not that fem- other female character for her, for her to sort of, um, right trade notes with and be like, yes, this is how it is. And da, 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 da. And yes, this is the nineties. So that's kind of the thing. And, and, and you're right. There is something really remarkable where Jody's not gendering herself. She just cares. Her bottom line is science. She identifies yeah. as a scientist. She is scientist, Dr. Ellie, like it's, she is that. So, um, and I, and I can relate to that a lot. Cause it's like the, the most, um, I don't know, disorienting moments of sexism or when you're, you're just identifying yourself as an, as a, as an artist or an auteur or a, someone who is trying to make something happen and someone else is gendering you and you're like, the math doesn't compute. You're like, oh yeah, right. I guess you're thinking this where I'm just thinking of myself as artist. I'm just thinking of myself as maker. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I love that in the film because that's her like, nor- not to make a, not to make a space pun, but like that's like her north star you know she's just so and then when she's in space and she sees the galaxy thing and she's like i have no words it's so beautiful like that the fact that she has those blinders on and that's all she cares about leads up to this incredible moment which i'll say i only noticed last night because maybe my vhs she vhs copy was a vhs copy which you know for people who know vhs's it's like it was, there's only it was mostly static it was just static. 18 hours of static <laughs> there's this <laughs> <laughs> there's this moment where she's looking at the galaxy and her face changes to the, her younger version of herself. Did you guys catch mm-hmm. that? Yeah. yeah. And suddenly her voice changes. I don't remember that happening whatsoever. Uh-huh. And I was yeah. like, is this like a remastering? Like someone Ooh. who made the Blu-ray, the Blu-ray DVD was like, let's add this weird moment because the technology almost, almost also feels too good too advanced for 97 yeah well i yeah. mean i'm not sure if you guys remember that sweet cg action in 97 but it was not seamless there, and there was, was static super great <laughs> <laughs> i really i mean it's i i'm so, i'm so interested to hear both of your perspectives on how the sexism in this movie is treated and i i yeah i'm kind of of like two minds about it where it, it mm. I, I think i would have really rolled my eyes if they came at it from a super 90s like woman can't do this and she goes well guess what i'm going to i'll show you yeah (laughs) like that is such a convention that and 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 i feel like you can really tell that uh someone who had experienced this kind of discrimination had been consulted because the examples are so like baked into the movie Mm -hmm. so it's like jill tarter's consultation you can like feel it in the way that like even in moments that i was that were very small where there's a scene where Jodie Foster's trying to talk to Angela Bassett as they're doing a very West Wing walk through the White House moment. And what's his, I, I kept calling him Drumline in my head. Uh, dr- <laughs> Drumline. Drumline. Drumline just starts talking over her and like start continues her sentence as if it was his own idea. And you're like, yeah. oh, that's such a small thing, but it mm-hmm. like really connects. And I do think that like the, the, the most elegant way to acknowledge it without making it like a real bash over the head third wave feminism moment is to just, yeah, give her someone to talk to about it, even in passing. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like it would have helped. But that said, I feel like the the sexism she experiences is 
pretty clear. I mean, especially at like the the James Wood screaming at her on national oh television God. of like yeah. blaming her for all sorts of shit that makes no sense. You're delusional. You were hysterical. You <laughs> hallucinated the whole thing. And the way that she keeps her cool like is so mm. it's, it's peak. A, like she's like you're saying Kelly like she's a scientist first and she's like okay as a scientist I have to say like yeah I don't have any proof. Oh <laughs> like gosh. maybe you're maybe you should have given me better than like a pair of $5 headphones. Like <laughs> attached to a little metal headband with no bobby pins no bobby pins they weren't Mm -hmm. attached and i just love that jody even when she's like traverse dimensions and she's on some sort of like tropical beach with her dad she's still like are you guys reading this (laughs) like she still has confidence and she's like i have to record this i i can have confidence in this little doohickey um Mm -hmm. yeah you're, you're so right it is sort of that that 90s convention of of like a woman can't do that and like that's um detrimental and problematic and leaves such a horrible like graveyard of films where you're watching women be like subject subjectified and and all that stuff so and i will say that i would categorize this film in the canon of pre you know where we're at now i guess pre um me too area era where we're sort of not find a lot of the things we know and how the functions of these films work has not been normalized where I have to give a lot of credit to Jodie Foster and and a lot of actresses at this time period and and from the last hundred years of filmmaking who are the sort of like last vestige or last stance of of being able to advocate for themselves on set like I constantly read interviews with with Meryl Streep and and, and actors who have been working forever who are like I literally had to sit down with the writer and say, she wouldn't do that. That's not what she did, mm-hmm. would do. She mm-hmm. cares about science. And female actors just don't get the sort of retroactive credit that I think that they deserve for advocating for their storylines. I, 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 I'm trying, I'm blanking on the film that I read Meryl Streep talking about this. The one, maybe it's the one with deer in the title. What's the title of that film? Deer. Deer hunter. No. Deer hunter. <laughs> Killing of a sacred deer. No, that's like, recent. Other deer. <laughs> Damn it. I'll have to, I can't remember, but there's a one where she talks about like, basically I had to help rewrite that film because the, because the female character made no sense. And it's the mm-hmm. making of no sense. The sort of, mm-hmm. the, the thing we're struggling with is it makes no sense that her relationship with Palmer Joss, it doesn't to us, it reads false. Because yeah. we know we know what makes her tick. We know the fiber of her character. We know what she would live and die for. She says it. She says, mm-hmm. I believe this is worth dying for. She says it. So mm-hmm. the falsities in her behavior, the, the, the choice to forgive Palmer for quite literally stomping on something that she is willing to die for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It reads so false. So... I mean, I just have to give credit to Jody because I can't imagine that she wasn't on set with those, with her, you know, running around looking for the writer and the producer and the director with her script in hand being like, no, she cares about science. No, she cares about science. And it's on every line she says. And it's so radiant in that yeah. way. It's such a radiant mm-hmm. performance because it's like from the very first thing we see her in as a young girl to the very end of the film and her admitting, yes. I, I can't give you empirical evidence. As a scientist, I must concede that. Like her yeah. church, her God, her religion is almost more realized than any religion that is represented in the film. Her religion is so realized in science. Mm-hmm. Oh, shout out to Jodi. She's, I, 
she they named an asteroid after her after this movie <gasps> came out. No way. In early 1998, there's an asteroid named after Jodie Foster. I have to, I, I'm assuming off of the success of Contact, but maybe just her impact is so felt that they're like, well, we were going to do this anyways. But yeah, asteroid <laughs> 17744, Jodie Foster is what is his name. Amazing. Uh, one thing, though, that did ring more true, though, in the movie was and I already touched on this, but like for me, for example, when I have been on the receiving end of sexism, it hasn't most of the time it hasn't been someone being like, oh, well, you're a woman. So blah, blah, blah. You can't do this. It's just been like more subtle stuff like Mm -hmm. me being talked over, me being interrupted, me like people passing me over for opportunities, like things like that. That is what Jodie Foster's character is experiencing in this movie. So I appreciate that you do have this like what we clearly identify as sexism, but it is not super overt or explicit. The sexism is, you know, more covert and subtle, which again, I think is a more common version of how people's sexism manifests. So that happening in the movie to Jodie's character just rang very true. Right. It's a very good point. Very good point. One thing I wanted to quickly shout out, this was kind of my last note on Ellie, mm-hmm. was it, it like exists throughout the background of the film, but I really liked her friendship with her coworker, Kent. Oh, yeah. Mm. I thought that that was really lovely. And it's I think it's just, again, it's like we're really looking for scraps in, in movies from the 90s in particular. But the fact that she had like a very, just a, a platonic friendship that seemed to be built on a lot of mutual respect for each other with her friend Kent and mm-hmm. I just thought it was so nice and then when he like shows up at the end she's like oh my god yeah. my friend Kent and then he <laughs> like, hears her he's the one who hears her saying yeah okay to go I started sobbing uh-huh. I started sobbing I sobbed yeah. a lot last night guys I'm really trying to play it cool <laughs> but I sobbed hard at the end of Jody's whole you know yeah that that relationship with Kent is really really interesting I, I think it's a little problematic the portrayal of a blind man that he plays I, it's a little you're kind of again as you said playing mm-hmm. for scraps with movies in the 90s because it's not only that he's portrayed as blind but almost that he's I don't know something to be um to kind of handle with kit gloves a little bit like the portrayal of of him as blind is is sort of I don't know. I'm not sure what you guys think about that. Yeah, I I was trying to find writing about this and I couldn't find anything specifically about this character in regards to the representation of a blind or visually impaired person. Definitely, it's problematic that the character is not played by an actor who is blind. Um, He's played by William Fitchner, who is not blind. It felt to me, and this is just kind of my limited understanding but it it felt like there were not a slew of tropes surrounding blindness that you do see in a lot of movies that are like really problematic. I feel like this movie avoided a fair number of those tropes, Mm -hmm. but I'm curious what listeners thoughts are on this, particularly anyone with a visual impairment. 
Um, I also, so uh, Kent is based on a real person who mm. was a uh, part of the SETI project who was blind. So it's, oh. I, I don't know. I, yeah, I would be really curious to to hear what our listeners think on that. But I was, I was like, oh, it, it is based on, on a real person um, who Jill Tarter knew and worked with. So it seems like that they were pulling from like some sort of real life dynamic that actually existed. But again, it's, I mean, the conversation around actors who who do not have the disability of the characters they're portraying is like a you know very ongoing conversation that we want to you know be a part of and keep learning about Mm -hmm. so shout out to the real kent colors i i'm seeing I'm, i'm kind of seeing this in real time but there's a documentary on him and, and on his career. Mm. Um, he is the first American astronomer who was blind from birth, and he continued to work at the SETI Institute uh, until 2005. So Whoa. very cool. Shout out to him. Sounds sounds like a legend. I'm like I, with all this stuff. I'm like I don't understand science, but that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, shout out shout out Kent. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to address some of the science stuff because it really bothers me at the end when James Woods goes absolutely like batshit on her like it, like mm-hmm. the the expectation that she would have evidence and it's on her to provide it is yeah it still makes me angry and it and it and speaking of like remembering what this film felt like when I was young I remember this feeling of feeling frustrated but what doesn't make sense to me is you know, Palmer at one point and her have this conversation about, well, 50 years may pass. Like it might be 45 seconds on earth and that might be 50 years. And he's like, are you chill with that? And she's like, I'm chill with that because this is my life's work and this is like what humanity is for and all that. Yeah. But for some reason, like that is not brought back into the possible explanation as to why she thinks that she had this huge experience and this, um, like that, why does that not brought up that the space-time continuum, the inflation of space, of time, at the end in the Senate, why isn't she like, well, as we've talked about, time on Earth is 45 seconds, but passing through multiple wormholes into, you know, lightning years away, time is going to be bloated in this way. Which Yeah, which they already establish as being a thing. Even a theologian who is not a man of science understands. He's like, you're going to be gone for 50 years, even though it'll only seem like maybe four years to you. Right. So like, yeah, you already know that time is different and that is perceived Mm -hmm. differently. 45 seconds dropping through, dropping through will be, could be a lifetime. And so that's what makes me mad. And mostly the, that James Wood thought that he's allowed to stand up in that Senate hearing and turn around and yell at her. And like, I'm like, who told you you're allowed to stand up in those things? It seems very intentional that he's like mm-hmm. making this show of it because it's televised and like all this stuff. And like yeah. the 90s was so full of women's truth being discredited on live television for yeah. people to, mm-hmm. to, to watch that. It was like, Ooh God, there was so many uh, like other hearings like that that had nothing to do with space that like your head kind of goes to when you see like a really aggressive man discrediting what a woman says is like the truth and also Kelly when you mentioned this earlier I was like oh yeah like the fact that James Wood is like blaming equipment failure that she didn't design (laughs) on her is like 
for what? Like it, you would think what? that someone else in the room would be like, hold on. She didn't make those shitty headphones like Sony did He's like, or whatever. Yeah, you have no evidence. You didn't bring back any evidence. It's like, what the hell was she supposed to do besides just experience it? Which she did. Problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like she's like, um, yeah, I, I'm not like a, a documentarian. I'm a scientist experiencing science. Like it, it was very, it made me so angry. And then I had like, like flashbacks to being angry as a kid being and I don't know <laughs> this film was more formative than I thought than I was quite aware of Rewatching it I'm like oh this did wire itself onto my DNA mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah those moments they're frustrating not because they're like poorly written they're frustrating because like it's representative of like again sexism that exists in the world and like him just not believing women is sexism that exists in the world for them to then go outside and people are like "Mm, ellie yeah i see that you're there but hey mr palmer Palmer, (laughs) what do you do you believe her what do you believe and people are focused on the opinion of this man and yeah it's very frustrating because it's sexism that is very familiar to us you know people only believing a woman if a man is validating her yeah but yeah it's something that the movie is handling very effectively i think i just hate the part where the man who is validating her is also this like wedged in love interest those i mean those those studio note scenes are so egregious and so cuttable too like it's those just goobers? like oh you could cut the mm-hmm. yeah the, the goobers all the, the, the goobers, goobers. <laughs> I, like i just it it's painful it's painful to watch we we uh, have referenced this throughout the movie but this is an extremely white movie in a way that is very unnecessary so unnecessary uh, i mean the only black character that has any real impact in the movie is angela bassett's character rachel who as we said she she has a strong function she's a strongly motivated character but we don't know anything about her and we don't get Mm. any look into her interior life we don't really get to know except until i mean honestly we don't know what she thinks about like jodie foster is she because we couldn't figure out is she the kind of character that's gonna want to people to know or maybe she's not maybe she's Mm -hmm. like i i am a bureaucratic person and i'll keep it quiet like we just don't know her well enough to know Mm -hmm. i wanted to shout out legendary character actor tucker smallwood who plays the um mission control guy he almost presses mm. the red button but then he i mm-hmm. i couldn't tell mm-hmm. if his character was given a name or not he was like pretty like active for like a you know the climax of the movie but i, <laughs> right. I couldn't even figure out but he's just credited as mission director no. um, which is so ridiculous you're like what the <laughs> what the like could you be lazier and more dismissive because he he was uh he was great he was mm-hmm. you know he was mr red button like <laughs> and and then there there um was i think in the first crew of scientists there was one black scientist who says like one line and then he's gone right mm-hmm. and everyone else is just it's just white people you have you yeah. have two japanese um engineers uh, or something engineers yeah but they but as, as you said kelly they they say like maybe a line and, and mm-hmm. that's it. They say nothing, and they also sort of portray a stereotype of Japanese scientists, and that is sort of this kind of yeah stereotype of 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 mm-hmm. uh, subservience. And um, I find that deeply problematic because you because especially knowing in the book how much 
the Japanese science and inventors have such a say in the in the final machine. So、mm-hmm. it's a very American lens of how Japanese people behave in a way. That's what I felt. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's like. Ultimately, I mean, even speaking to to what the book represents, like this should very much be a global story that is inclusive of more than white Americans,、mm-hmm. and 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 it seems like that was a very conscious, like goober Hollywood style choice, <laughs> is to only center. Cis straight white Americans in this story that should be I mean it's it's like an event for humanity not、uh-huh. middle、mm-hmm. class white Americans yeah and so that is you know definitely worth you know continuing to be critical of because we had a similar conversation on our episode about Arrival which we covered、mm-hmm. on the, our yeah. on yeah, the yeah. Patreon slash Matreon similar movies in that a woman in STEM is the protagonist of the. Of a movie where aliens make contact with the people of Earth,、mm-hmm. but it is still a very like America centric. Oh yeah, narrative as many Hollywood sci fi films are. I mean, I watched as I said. Unfortunately, I watched、um, Interstellar <laughs> recently,、mm-hmm. and that one is. I missed it when it came out, and it's breathtaking how little any other place in the whole. Goddamn world is represented besides America. Like、yeah. the the concept is that Earth is dying, that resources are de- are impoverished and depleting, and crops are dying, and all they show is this backcountry American farm. They don't show anywhere else in the world that would be absolutely far more strapped if the world was if the if there was windstorms and you know climate changes we're dealing with now. Like as if it wouldn't be. Indonesia or anywhere other than or in in Haiti, where like the 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 very front lines of climate change and and places、mm-hmm. where these um where that type of shift in degree in climate would be most readily felt, and it's like it's literally just Jessica Chastain and Matthew McConaughey's fam who are struggling on their farm, and they're. <laughs> You know he's going to fix the world, start a new colony with only white people, and it's、uh, it's a, a sad tradition of of this type of movie. But I also think it filters into this sort of American identity of being like the only ones who have ever、uh, participated in the space exploration space or the sorry space exploration space. Like that sounds、mm-hmm. that's that's not the best way to say that space exploration. <laughs> <laughs> right, but,、uh, but yeah, I、know. mean, like this idea that we're like we have to be the saviors of humanity. Yeah, it's、right. just such as an outsider watching it. I mean, outsider being Canadian, not American. It has always been such a difficult and weird pill to swallow. Like the constant flags that you see, American flags on on new planets that you see in every flipping movie. You know,、mm-hmm. it is bizarre to me because. The end. The tradition of engineering and science and and technology and and STEM in all forms is so diverse. It is so, oh God! Look, it just makes me want to break something in a not in like a less violent <laughs> way. But you know, it, it Interstellar Arrival has that. Any type of let's say of humanity has that ilk of.、Uh, and guess who our saviors are?、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Team America, yeah. Team、um, America. I also found it. <sighs> maybe this is just me, but it gets mentioned in the movie that half a trillion dollars is spent on this project, and you hear like similar stories in real life about 
all this like I mean, federal like money. Elon Musk is doing right now. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Private money, federal money being spent on space exploration and stuff like that, which is important. Uh, people who are working on that, like, I understand that that's important. But also, like, a large percentage of the world's population is living in poverty. So, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe let's focus on mm-hmm. Earth's issues before we, like, spend trillions of dollars. Right. And now you're quoting Palmer. You know. <laughs> this is what Palmer was talking about in the beginning of the film. And it never panned out. Not you agreeing with Palmer. Oh, no, no, damn I mean, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's sort of what Palmer was talking about. Sort of like, you know, yeah. how do you... How do you explore other places when you're not taking care of the people in your backyard? And that's... Uh, yeah. Not to say that Palmer had a point, but he did but, have some points. Mm, points were made. He had one point. <laughs> it never, yeah, it never really came up again. Um, here's my hot take about this movie. Ready, everyone? Okay. So the, you know, all the, the billions of dollars that they spend on this machine and the, this trip that Ellie takes, the conversation that she ends up having with the alien could have been an email they didn't need (laughs) they didn't need wow to build the machine why why aren't they just sending out some emails you know i know didn't have to be a meeting could have been an email thank you i mean i think that that's if there's any you know that's another thing that we've learned in the past year there a lot of things could just be emails could have just been an email Um, Mm -hmm. yeah could have been an email a well-written email feels as good as a revisit from your dead dad honestly that's all (laughs) just send it fire off a bunch of prime numbers See if anyone yeah. responds. Yeah. Hey, Ellie, it's your dad. That's it. <laughs> Emoticon. Like. Doesn't she? <laughs> yeah, which emojis does the aliens alien species go with? Oh, goodness. Uh, d- does this movie pass the Bechdel test? No. It, I think it technically does, but it's not a very yeah. satisfying pass. That was what I, that was my conclusion. Yeah, there were two conversations that I felt were candidates for passing. One yeah. where Angela Bassett is she's a, kind of addressing a whole room full of people, mm-hmm. but she like mm-hmm. looks at Ellie a couple times. And Ellie responds. <laughs> and Ellie responds, but it's that conversation where like Rachel is saying that for now, like Ellie will m- remain in charge of this like decryption effort. A few men are mentioned in that conversation. So that one's a little murky. Yeah. And then later when Ellie is like, hey, Rachel, do you know where I can find a really great dress? Because women be talking about shopping. Yikes. Uh, Technically, but I I think that the context, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it is a reach to say the context is like, because I want to look nice for Matthew McConaughey. That was the implied context to me. Yes, exactly. I'm going to give this one like a barely pass. Yeah, it's not not a great. If it is a pass, it's not a a great one. Yeah. Draw your own conclusion. I mean, and also it's a fucking two and a half hour movie. The fact that we have to be splitting hairs here is <laughs> ridiculous. Yep. Truly. <sighs> so. Yeah. Uh, well, that brings us to our nipple scale on which we rate the movie, examining it through an intersectional feminist lens on a scale of zero to five nipples. And I would say, I think this movie is ahead of its time in a lot of ways. I think that it's awesome that you have, you know, women in STEM visibility, Mm -hmm. because this is the type of representation where like, little girls watching this movie who maybe hadn't seen themselves represented before in a like STEM role can be like, wow, women can be scientists, I can be scientists, like I can go and be a scientist. So um, I think that that's 
really important and this was you know a big budget movie that was successful at the box office a lot of people saw it so that is a great thing i also think Mm -hmm. it's cool that and this is something that also i brought up on our arrival episode but i i love when a movie with a protagonist who is a woman explores like deep philosophical existential questions because like philosophy has been a topic dominated by men not because women are not capable of philosophical debate and not because they haven't been doing the work it just hasn't been preserved and uplifted in the same way exactly and i also think i think that's like the the backside to the bechdel test is that without women talk when you have films where women are only talking about men it means all the important philosophical like bomb dropping political conversations about the film are happening by the male characters like that I always think is the interesting flip side to the Bechtel test is like for Mm -hmm. all the conversations women are having about only men the male the male conversations can be about what is this film trying to say and what is how is it trying to change the world so for for her to participate in Mm -hmm. this discussion around like faith versus science versus you know evidence versus like all you know all that kind of stuff I really appreciated because like yeah. for example a counter to this would be in our Da Vinci Code episode another Matreon episode but um you have these two men talking about like it's not philosophy but they're talking about you know history and like all all this like Christian mythology and stuff like that and then Audrey Tattoo is just like what I don't find like she doesn't get to contribute anything (laughs) poor Audrey Audrey tattoo in the da vinci code (laughs) i don't know why that was the first example that came to my head but yeah so i i I appreciate that about this movie the the sexism that ellie is on the receiving end of is definitely present i i think it's interesting the way that it was handled and that it's like very present but like kind of subtle or it's like not super yeah. explicit and you know the mm. idea that like she is not believed that she is kind of she is like accused of being delusional and hysterical she is uh often overlooked or you know men are taking credit for her work uh are all like very real and present things that women experience and um i thought that was all interesting but then it's got its problems. You've got this wedged in romantic subplot that I can't think of a subplot, a romantic subplot that has ever been less necessary oh, yeah. in a movie. And more obviously shoehorned in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh, it it so just true. made me feel yucky. Um, yeah. The extreme whiteness of the film, the stre- extreme, again, like US centric nature of the narrative um a a cis white middle class highly educated able-bodied woman being representative of all of humanity Mm. (laughs) so um you know it's got some like of the time 90s era problems but i also think it's ahead of its time in other ways so i would i i want to give this like a three somewhere between like a three three and a half range nipple wise and I'll give one to Jodie Foster. I'll give one nipple to Jill Tarter. I will give one nipple to Andrewin. And I will give, I'll, I'll throw in like a, a quarter nipple to the phrase, okay to go. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll I'll oh, I'll meet yeah. you there. Three and a quarter sounds about right. Um, for all the reasons you described, this should very much be a, a global story, and I think that that's something that we. U.S. centrism in basically all of Western film is definitely a huge issue, but I feel like it crops up in this genre particularly mm-hmm. all the time in a way that mm-hmm. like I can't really think of a, a space movie that I've seen and I haven't seen it, but like I can't really think of like a space movie that doesn't have this kind of underbrewing of American patriotism to it mm-hmm. in yeah. a way that is like definitely insidious and long overdue to be challenged in like a meaningful way because it is like because I I enjoy this genre but there always is kind of a flag wavy element to it that um this movie is not the most guilty of oh uh, that's like, probably independence probably independence day, day uh, maybe armageddon um, armageddon's pretty flag oh, yeah. wavy too like uh, but 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 it is like you know I, something we should keep talking about because it is sure. like even in a movie like this where it isn't the most forced on you it is still very much forced on you um i i do i i like how this um movie did you know they did their homework in a way that most movies don't um they spoke to female scientists who have experienced this you know subcategory of sexism and kind of put it into the script in a, in a way that flowed very naturally. I do wish that Jodie Foster's character had another woman to relate to about this mm-hmm. um, or speak to. And that would have been a way better use of our time than making us look at Matthew McConaughey's scarf. That said, <laughs> I really like, I don't know. I, I was very moved by like mm-hmm. parts of this movie. And a lot of that is just like Jodie Foster, but um, it does seem like this is a project that was driven by even even in a majority male uh, creative team that like the key creative decisions were pushed through by female producers, mm-hmm. by Andrian, by by Jill Tarter and and uh, by Jodie Foster. So, yeah, I, you know, this should have been a more global movie, but I still think it holds up in more ways than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. So I'll give it three and a quarter and yeah, I'll give one to Jody, one to Jill, one to Anne, and I'll give the last quarter to the headphones that didn't Ooh, work. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I wanna take away. a nip I wanna give a, a nipple to Angela Bassett. So who's I'll who's distribu- on the chopping block? I I'm just gonna redistribute it equally. So oh, okay. um, that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. gonna you're gonna split a number that cannot be split into a transcendental pie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. three and a quarter is so close to pie. I'm it's gonna so give it pie nipples. Whoa, pie. that's infinite nipples. <laughs> yeah, pie nipples. Pie nipples, and um, I'm gonna I'll distribute them evenly between the people I said plus Angela Bassett. Pie. Mm. Um, what about you, Kelly? Well, yeah, I'm really into this pineapple. I there is so much. I I do have a really interesting bookend with this film. As I've watched it as a young, um, a young girl, someone who was treated like a girl with as to bring it back to my many male cousins and and the world I grew up in. Mm-hmm. I I will say for all of its problems and its um, America centrism, which if I can provide an alternate, uh, Danny Boyle's Sunshine is a really good example of, I think, of an American-made film 
that doesn't have that sort of patriotism. Uh, mm. Tarkovsky's Solaris. Solaris is one of the most beautiful sci-fi films ever made that deals with like, you know, going up into space on a mission, a suicidal mission of, of hope for humanity sort of thing. But I will say for all of its problems and its lack of representation, its lack of uh, representing humanity and, and all of it, I can't disregard how this movie made me feel as a young girl and now I cannot disregard how impactful it was and how it felt to watch that moment where she's running and the science is happening and she's spitting out all these crazy things like it's those moments where you don't quite register or or you've registered the sexism you've experienced your whole life on such a molecular level that when it's being countered with such a brazen expression of a woman following her passion in an area dominated by men you feel it like bubbling up from your stomach and your gut being like like oh my gosh I've never how cool is it that she's racing through here and talking on the walkie so I'm gonna give it a like a really I'm going to give all four nipples to Jodie Foster (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. and say her, and mostly Jodie Foster's eyes, like just those big, welling, truthful pools of truth looking into the stars. (laughs) Like I, that's the film for me is going, the rest of it, all the the problems of it sort of, I I think are worthy of discussion, which we have, you know, we've Mm -hmm. discussed it, but um, Mm -hmm. what, you cannot, with all the problems and the scarves and the McConaughey, even though he tries to like, make the scenes about himself, nothing, nothing comes close to Jodie Foster's eyes looking at stars. There's just nothing. And the way I felt <laughs> when I was 12 watching this film, or 13, or wherever, however old I was, versus now is, uh, is very similar. So four nipples for Jodie Foster's eyes. Yeah, she has Yay. more chemistry with the... <laughs> the sky and the cosmos that she's looking at than she does with Matthew McConaughey. So it's so true. And how beautiful is that? Like think about how easy it would have been to make this character male and to say to, in terms of representation of a woman, just following her dreams and having an interest for her life and her, for her heart that is that doesn't involve a male even though math mcconaughey is there it's like her mm-hmm. her love interest is the stars end of story yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah we didn't need to add anyone else well kelly thank you so much for for being here for joining us i can't believe we recorded for 18 hours with you oh my goodness <laughs> pretty incredible i know it's like <laughs> what happened in static we don't know okay to go let's yeah say. i did I, I had to edit out a lot so you yeah. know this is like a two-hour episode that originally was 18 hours thank you for being here uh tell us where we can find you on social media anything you'd like to plug etc oh man uh well on social media i'm on instagram at Kelly and Phyllis. That's pretty much the only... I'm on Twitter too, but I'm thinking of leaving shortly. So probably for the best. Yeah, Yeah, probably for the best. I don't use it really, but... um, So find me on Instagram. I post a lot of photos of trees and natures. I'm just like... Got an Instagram account for the Terrence Malick fans out there. I just like nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a film coming out, or no, that is out already on VOD, uh, anywhere you rent movies, called Sugar Daddy, which is about a woman uh, brazenly trying to make art and surrounded by patriarchy and men and men trying to control her voice and her trying to find it. So I will say that this film very much is, uh, was on the origin story of the film that I, of this film, Sugar Daddy. So uh, that's, that's what I want to plug. 
because it's not set in space. It's set set in a grimy apartment in Toronto. But <laughs> is is that not space? Like, let's be let's be mm. real. It's, it's anything could be space. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for being with us, Kelly. We really appreciate it, and thank you for bringing us this movie. It was like yeah. it was such a fun. There's so much to talk about. It's been yeah. a it's been a long requested movie, so I'm finally yeah. I'm glad we finally got to do it. Yeah. Oh man, that's so happy, and thank you for like what a speaking of dreams like how fun is it just to chat for like two hours two plus hours 18 hours 18 hours yeah. like-minded people <laughs> who want it your, your podcast is so valuable and fun and it speaks to a type of discussion that I could have at all times so I'm happy mm. to do it sort of mildly professionally with you guys Yay. <laughs> come back anytime yeah. Yay. Um, and then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bechtelcast and uh, subscribe to our Matreon where we have covered Arrival and Da Vinci Code and other Woo. movies that I didn't <laughs> reference on today's episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's $5 a month. It gets you access to two bonus episodes plus the entire back catalog. And that's at uh, patreon.com slash Bechtelcast. And you can get our merch at tpublic.com slash thebechtelcast for all your various items with our stuff on it needs. <laughs> we don't have a space suit yet. Yet. But we'll see. Or a headband. A headband, or a headband. camera. No flimsy Radio Shack <laughs> f- headband it camera. Is Radio Shack. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. That's the real merch from that film. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that was the merch opportunity. Um, and I think otherwise, uh, we're, we're okay to go. Okay to go. We're okay to go. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. You deserve to treat yourself. So turn your tax refund into a U-Fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's Unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk Extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.